topic is forgiveness, and I, I want to give two illustrations from my own life to weave through the talk as I go through. But as I, as I do that, as I share with you my heart, I'm going to ask that you just think about yourself. Ask that you think about somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven. Or at least that you would open up your heart to God to show you some of the people in your life whom you haven't forgiven. I want to give two illustrations. One is, uh, is from my past with present um, implications to it. And the other is from my present with present implications to it. And I hope that between the two of them, they'll kind of cover the broad landscape of what forgiveness covers. The first one is really painful. In fact, um, I don't, I'm not usually able to talk about it without it um, being somewhat emotional, and especially now because I'm going through another layer of God's exposure in my, in my heart, in my life with this situation. But when I was 10 or 11 years old, 10 and 11 years old, in fact, this was over a period of about two years, my father had left, and a close friend of our family came into my life and acted as my daddy. We lived in the Boston area, and having grown up with a single mom, I really lacked the boy kind of involvements and the, the masculine kind of things that, that you enjoy growing up as a boy if you have a daddy, and I never had that. So I often did sports and whatnot on my own. I had to learn how to do boy things. Um, in fact, I guess it's okay to say this, even going to the bathroom. <laughs> I had to figure out um, the difference between my sisters and whatnot and, and some of the... Uh, things that a boy needs to learn. And, and this man, though, came into my life at about age 10 and became a daddy to me. He took me to Paul Revere's house and, and around uh, all the neat sites in, in Boston and taught me uh, a lot about uh, just history and, and uh, warfare, stuff that boys enjoy. And took me to my first hockey game. I saw Bobby Orr in his rookie year playing hockey and saw John Havlicek playing for the Celtics when he first started out and saw Carl Yastrzemski in the Red Sox. Um, that you may not know any of those names, but they're famous players and took me to all those kind of boy things. My first camping trips were with him. Um, just about everything I associate with early masculinity, I associate with him. And over a period of two years, he very subtly and manipulatively um, uh, abused me uh, sexually and, and otherwise. And obviously it's been a very difficult thing to learn what it means to forgive him. And I hope to illustrate that as we go through this talk. Now, on the other side of the of the landscape, lest you think that forgiveness just has to do with that level of abuse and pain, or, or that, that which is so obvious and so stark, I want to go to the other side and give an example from last week with my wife, because it's much harder for me many times to forgive with her than it is even for that man. And that was a, a time where we were in the kitchen together. And she made some comments, and I want you to understand that I, th I think that two of the reasons why this was uh, more difficult than usual is, number one, I was in an irritable state, which I often slide into from time to time when I'm working too much or too hard. And so I, I, for that reason, it had more impact than it might otherwise have. And the other reason is because my wife isn't usually this, this way, and because it was so contrary to the way she usually is with me, uh, it made greater impact too. And that was 
um, she was criticizing me. And, and I just felt the impact of her criticism. And she's not normally critical with me, so it really was a big contrast. And as I go through the talk today, I want to relate it also to that experience and what God is doing in my heart and what it means to forgive your wife um, when she's critical. So, turn to Matthew chapter 18. I want to look at the parable of the unmerciful servant and what Jesus teaches about forgiveness there. I want to start with the end of the parable. If you look uh, beginning in verse 32, Jesus says this. He says, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. As I talk about forgiveness, I want to relate forgiveness to the gospel and to our sonship. Jesus uses the term Father here even at the end of this parable. But the first thing I want to do is start at the end of the parable to make a couple of points. And that is, two really stark things reach out to me as, as I read through this whole parable, but especially as I get to the end of the parable. And the first is how deadly seriously Jesus took forgiveness. And it's not just here, but it's always really thrown me for a loop and just, just knocked me over when I, when I read about Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and, and just how, how stark and even dark He is when He speaks about this subject. I mean, look at what He says here. And what He gives us here is a horror picture, a horror show. And, and for good reason, I think, which I'll explain in a minute. But the second thing I see here that relates is that this, this is the end of his response to Peter's question. And in doing so, I think he's giving Peter a lesson that he desperately needed and that I desperately need, and I think that you need as well. And it's a lesson about the difference between what you place your dream in and where that leads. And what Jesus does is he uses a, a form of teaching that I've used with my kids, that I've even used with my wife, <laughs> I use with my congregation, that many people use who have been in teaching. That is, you teach by contrast. You teach by bringing out the dark side or the conclusions of, if you stay on this path, this is where you're going to end up. If you think this way, these are the logical conclusions, that's where you're going to be. And what Jesus does here in answer to what's on Peter's mind is I think he, he, he takes Peter down the road of where his question is leading. And he shows, them, he shows Peter the end of that road. And in doing so, he says, this is the horrible picture of where that ends up. And the picture that he gives us here is a picture of hell. It's a picture of judgment. It's a picture of, of uh, the servant being tormented because of his inability to forgive. And as Jesus is talking to Peter, I think he's bringing out this central point that I see throughout the New Testament, and especially in the teachings of Jesus. And that is, whatever you place your hope in, you will be judged by. Whatever you give your life to, whatever you give your heart to, whatever you make your Lord... You will, whatever you live by, you will die by. 
whatever you place your hope in, you will be judged by. And what he's saying to Peter is, as he brings this out, is he's bringing out the dark side of the picture, and he's saying, if you want to place your hope in something other than the gospel, and ultimately to Peter, something other than me, then this is the kind of man you will be. If you wish to place your hope in justice, then you will be a man of justice, and you will be judged and die by justice. If you want to stand before the judgment seat without the living gospel covering you and being your advocate by your side, then by the stark judgment and justice of God you will be judged by, and here's where you will end up. Look at this horrible picture. Now, by, by implication, Jesus is also saying the other thing. That is, that there is another path, there is another road that this man that he tells the story about never did get, never understood, never placed himself under, and that Jesus is using this for the purpose of teaching. But that other path is that you go to this great king and receive mercy, forgiveness, life, and grace. And when you do that, if you truly do it, then that mercy, grace, and forgiveness fills your life and you pass it on to others. If you're on the road of mercy, then mercy comes from you. So, at the very, at the very beginning, I want us to take the very end of the parable and see where Jesus is going in all this and see that contrast. And I want to ask you, as you think about your life, as you think about forgiveness, the ultimate question I think that's being laid before us here is what, where are you placing yourself? And, 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 I, and I think what it, it begs, the question that it begs in my life is this, when I have an inability to forgive, what's really going on? And I think what it points me to is what's really going on is that my heart has drifted to a different road and a different path that has a very dark ending to it. That there are, that there are two places that, that, that I may turn to. And if I, and if I, if I want to uh, live by, by justice, then, then that is not the road of, of mercy and of grace and forgiveness. And here's where those two paths go. Now... Uh, with the end of the parable in mind, now let's go back to the beginning of the parable. And let's look at what's happening here. The parable begins with a question by Peter. And in its context, in Matthew chapter 18, as you know, um, the context here is that, that uh, Jesus has instructed his disciples that they are to pursue people who hurt them. They are to go to their brother who sins against them. Uh, and even pursue that further when it's getting nowhere and take two people and go as two wherever there are two or three witnesses uh, take someone else with them and, and go to that person pursue the people who hurt you and this raises the question in Peter's mind how often do you love people who hurt you how much do you pursue the people who hurt you in the uh, sonship course uh, you'll look at conflict uh, later in the course but before we look at conflict I think there's an important question for us, and that's, where's your heart? And that's the question that Jesus is going to drive home to Peter. Even before we do the previous section of Matthew 18 in the Sonship Course and say, you know, we need to enter into people's lives and pursue them even with healthy conflict and truth and honesty when that's needed, the, the prior question, the more ultimate question is, how are you going to do that in the right spirit? How are you going to do that in a way that's love? 
And not in a way that is out of selfishness, out of a way that's trying to get a payback out of them. Where's your heart? How are you going to go to people in the right heart? Well, Peter says, Jesus, how much do we pursue this love thing? And he goes to Jesus and he says, verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often are we to do this? Should it be as, as many as seven times? A rather perfect number? And, and I ask you to think of those people in your mind and your heart now. How many times should I forgive Peggy? If she remains critical to me, how many times should I, and this is not a trend uh, with us, but there are other things for her with me and for me with her and certainly with our children and for you as you think about the people that, that I've asked you to think about. How many times do you forgive them? After you forgive them the first time and they come back the next day and do it again, do you, you forgive them again? What if, they, what if they came back on a third day or a third week and did the very same thing you've forgiven them two times previously for? Do you forgive them again? How about when it's four times, five times, six times? I mean, I think Peter's being awfully gracious here. Seven times. Can you forgive people seven times? Jesus says at the end of the parable that the, that the most important thing about forgiveness is that you're forgiving people from your heart, that it's real, that it's genuine, that's from within. Can you forgive people seven times from your heart for the very same thing? I think Peter's being awfully gracious. He says, seven times, Lord, maybe that's how many. You know, I've been around you enough to know your graciousness and your forgiveness, so I know that it's got to be more than, uh, than I want to or more than I feel, so maybe it's a, a total of seven times. And uh, we, uh, we know from that day that, that the rabbis fi- had it all figured out. The rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, figured out the answer to that question. Because it's a natural question. Isn't that your knee-jerk reaction to I mean, Peggy, how many times do I forgive you before I require you to change? How many times do I tell you that I, I still love you and I take you off the hook before I say, and you're not going to do this again? When do you draw the line? And, well, the rabbis had it all figured out when you draw the line. They, in, in, in their teaching, in their law, they said that the amount of times that you're required to forgive is three. It says, if somebody sins against you, you forgive them once. I have quotes from two different rabbis on this. If they sin against you the second time, you forgive them. If they sin against you the third time, you forgive them, but not the fourth time. You're not obligated to forgive them the fourth time. Because maybe then you're just helping them sin and helping them not take things seriously. I, I, you know, I know that in my, in my marriage, I don't want to forgive more than once. And in fact, when she does it the second time, I remember the first time. And everything within me wants to remind her of the first time, let alone when it happens a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time. She, uh, she, uh, we were in Florida this weekend, and, and she uh, misplaced her keys. And uh, I've really tried my best not to ask her how many times this has happened. Because <laughs> it's been more than once. And, and I did really well all weekend. 
And on the plane on the way home, I asked her. You know, there's that record thing that keeps a record of people's sins. And when we forgive, we don't want to white it out. We just sort of cross it out, but we want to keep it there so that if it comes up again, we can bring it back at them. Because at some point, none of us want to forgive. Now, I think that's what's happening here at the beginning of this passage, is that Jesus is going right to the heart of our problem. The problem why we are so unable to forgive. And the reason is, is because all we want is justice. We have a knee-jerk reaction against forgiveness because what we want is vengeance. There's something within us that says, only to a certain point, after you cross that line, then there must be justice and then I must be paid back. Look at what happens here. Jesus says, not seven times, Peter, but 77 times. And what, what Jesus is saying is... Uh, It's not even what you can fathom, Peter. Peter, not even you could forgive seven times in all of your your, your graciousness, Peter. You couldn't even do that. But I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. There's uh, some uh, disagreement on whether it means 490 times here, by the way, or or 77 times. There's There's a difference of opinion on what the Greek is or what the Greek means. It could mean either 70 plus 7 or 70 times 7. And I just have to laugh when I read those commentaries because I've never forgiven more than probably three. So, I mean, when Jesus says 77, I don't think he's saying, you know, when you get that far, once you're forgiven 77 times, you can stop. You know, no more that I can actually turn to Peggy and say, that's it, I got it, this is it, 77 times, no more. 78, you don't get the chance. He's saying, forget it. Jesus is saying, tear up the records, tear up the books, throw away your bookkeeping, close down the accounting department. It's incalculable. If you think it's about counting, if you think it's about keeping records, if you think it's about anything like that, then you don't understand what I'm talking about, Peter. That's about justice. Now, this is further illustrated if you go back to Genesis chapter 4. Because Jesus is picking up on something very familiar when he answers Peter this way. And what he's picking up on is in Genesis chapter 4, the story of Lamech. Let me read it to you. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Now listen to this. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, and in the Hebrew it's yelled, which could also be child, a young man or child or, or a teenager for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. One of the reasons I think the Greek should actually be translated 77 times is because I think Jesus really is alluding back to Genesis 4 and the Hebrew is clear that it's 77, but that's not the issue. There's a great contrast being, being made here. As Jesus speaks to Peter, and Peter says, should I forgive seven times? And Jesus says, and he chooses this number out of the air, 77 times. I think he's alluding back to Genesis 4, and most of the commentators I've read agree on this, with Lamech. And I think what he's saying to Peter is, I want you to understand the difference of what we're talking about here. Because what you see in Lamech is, a, is the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. With Lamech, what you see is the knee-jerk reaction of our hearts. In Genesis 4, you you have the history of mankind being played out from Cain to Lamech, and what you see is the progression of sin in humankind. 
And it begins with Cain, who succumbed to the temptation to kill his brother's, brother Abel out of revengefulness. But it ends with Lamech generations later, where that sin really permeates and gets, it, gets its roots. And Lamech is not only just succumbing to temptation for vengeance, he's exulting in it. He sings this taunting song of vengeance. And he says, if God avenged Cain, and you know the story there, where Cain sinned and then God put his judgment on Cain, placed a mark on Cain and said, Nobody, nobody's going to touch you. And it was a mark of grace, not a mark of judgment. God had already given his judgment to Cain and, and, and telling him he was going to be excluded and had to live outside of, of God's kingdom area. And instead, he put, and then he puts his mark on Cain to protect Cain and says, nobody is going to be able to touch you. And the idea being, vengeance is mine. I'm the one that gives judgment, and I have judged you. My justice has kicked in, and now I'm going to cover you. And there's a sense in which uh, Cain, I don't even think, got it, or really, you know, he asked God for patience, but I, I don't think... I don't have any sense that it was with this real sincerity or anything, but there's God's grace kicking in and saying, I'm going to give it to you anyway, and I'm going to protect you. And if anybody touches you, if anybody tries to kill you, if all the kin and clansmen try to come in and avenge for Abel, I will avenge them seven times over. That's how righteous I am. That's how just I am. Now, Lamech, on the other hand, says, if God avenges seven times, I avenge 77 times. If a sin against God's justice kicks in His vengeance seven times, I'm so righteous and vengeful, my income's 77 times. And you see that the arrogance of man as it develops from Cain to Lamech. Jesus turns that around. And he says, no, Peter, you don't forgive seven times. That's all mankind could even hope to do, and you can't even do that, really. But I ask you to forgive 77 times. And what he's telling Peter is, I ask you to do something that, that you can't do. I you know, I think that, any, that forgiveness, probably more than the tongue or anything else in the sonship course, is going to show you your need for grace and for the gospel. Because if there's anything that you're going to realize that you're not going to be able to do, it's going to be to be able to truly forgive somebody from your heart even more than a couple of times. This is how it is with me, with my abuser. Everything within me all my life since that time, except for um, the fact that for the first... Uh, 15 years or so, I, I medicated my heart so much that I didn't even feel the pain. I didn't even deal with it. I didn't think anything was wrong. I didn't think anything was done to me to be forgiven. That's one of the things we try to do. To avoid forgiveness is you just deny and dull the pain so you don't have to, have to go to God with it. And that's what I did for many, many years. But once I started feeling the pain, what do you think I wanted to do? I wanted to kill this guy. I mean, every time I thought about him, I killed him in my heart and in my mind in various creative ways I mean I fantasized how to do that and how to hurt him and how to make him hurt I dreamed about it 
Often your dreams will even show where you're not forgiven. In fact, a new layer of this onion has even come recently within the last few weeks. I've had a couple of nightmares again about what he's done. How do you think I feel in those nightmares? I mean, it's a terrible feeling, but you know what I do with it? I kill him again, and and then I feel better. Vengeance. I will repay for Dave 77 times. I want I, justice wants to kick in. I do that with my abuser and with Peggy too. When I felt that criticism come from my wife, everything within me just wanted to slap back and hit back and balance the scales. I didn't want to forgive her. What I wanted to do is make things right in my heart by a payback. And I'll get back to that a little later. But Jesus says, uh, Jesus says 77 times from your heart. Now I ask you, where are you going to get the desire to do that? You're not going to want to do it. Do you recognize that? I mean, you certainly can if you think about the worst case scenarios. But I'm sure you can if you think about anybody in your heart. Where are you going to get the motivation and the desire to do this? How about the power? How are you going to be able to do this? There's nothing else in my life that has shown me how impotent I am like trying to forgive. All right. That's where Jesus brings us to the gospel. Peter asks the question, and then Jesus gives a story. He gives, he gives this parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant. And what he does is he brings Peter to the gospel, because the gospel is the only place where you're going to find the desire or the power to be like Jesus. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, verse 23, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold in in order to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. I mean, it's almost comical if you really understand what's going on in this passage. Jesus gives this parable as the answer to Peter's question. And what he's saying is, Peter, you desperately need the gospel. Let me go through here and, and, and glean out what I think the gospel means from this parable that, that Jesus gives us. The first is, I think it says to us that the gospel means closing the bookkeeping department of your heart. Look at verse 23. It's a parable about bookkeeping. It's a parable about record keeping. It's a parable about a king who calls his servants in to give an accounting of what they've done with his money. Verse uh, 20, uh, verse 23, uh, it says that this is a, a king who wanted to settle accounts, and as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And uh, throughout the parable, the word apodidomi is, is used seven times. And that word is a word that means to pay back, or to render what is due, or, or to, to settle an account. And, and what is emphasized throughout the parable over and over again is this is about settling accounts. This is about balancing scales. This is about paybacks and payups. This is about getting even. 
And what I want you to see right away is that you, the danger is that when you look at the first few verses, you're gonna, you think, well, this is about vengeance, and I'm not vengeful. I mean, I, I don't feel vengeful toward Peggy. I do towards my abuser, because it's much more obvious. But my lovely little wife, I don't want to feel vengeful towards her. And so I think, well, this is not about me. It's not about vengeance. But it's interesting that when Jesus answers Peter's question and brings up the whole vengeance issue, he immediately goes into a story that's very obviously not about vengeance. It's about justice. And his whole point with Peter is, I want to remove the justice issue out of this because forgiveness has to do with foregoing justice. And what he wants to speak to my heart and to yours is that I need to deal with the fact that my heart at some point always wants Peggy to pay me back. And that's true with everybody in my life. That hurts me. And what I'm being asked to do when I'm being asked to forgive is to give up that right and that knee-jerk reaction to paybacks and, and pay-ups. The gospel means closing the bookkeeping department. I think the parable also teaches that the gospel means nobody out forgives the big-hearted king. What it teaches us is the same thing that it says in Luke 7 when it says, He who is forgiven much, loves much. Look at what it says. Verse 21. Jesus says, Peter, I tell you, don't, it's not forgiving seven times. It's forgiving 77 times. And I, do you feel that way with God? Do you understand that the gospel means that nobody can out-forgive the big-hearted king? When you think of even your lack of forgiveness, do you understand um, that this passage is saying that God is asking you to do something, and when He asks you to do something, He never asks you to do anything that He won't Himself do? Do you think that God doesn't live up to His own standards? I I do. How many times does it take you to go to God with your same sin before you say, my credit must be up. He's not going to forgive me. I've crossed that line. Now he's saying pay up, pay back. Justice is going to kick in. You have to balance the scales. The gospel means that nobody out forgives the big-hearted king. God forgives you 77 times. Verse 27. The gospel, as as it's spelled out here, means that you are the servant in this story. The role that you're playing in this drama and in this play is that you are cast and I'm cast as the, as the servant here. And it says that the big-hearted king took pity on his servant, that he had compassion for the servant that comes before him. And then it says that um, he looks at the debt of the servant and, the, and it was 10,000 talents. And most of us don't really have a clue as to what that means when it says 10,000. What would that be? in today's terms. But what it's saying is that you and I come before the big-hearted king and we owe him this great sum, this unimaginable sum. And and in that day, 10,000 talents would be equivalent to this. A a talent was the the largest unit of money that they had or or valuing money. It was a weight. Today, the largest unit of money, I've been asking people about this and somebody told me there's a $10,000 bill and and a banker friend of mine says that, that, that that's not true. Uh, so I, I'm not sure anymore. But another banker friend of mine said that they used to have $1,000 bills, but that they don't even use those anymore. So I'm not sure. So I kept asking bankers, and I, I'm really worried about the bank industry now. 
But anyway, I, I think that, um, as far as I can tell, the biggest bill that you can get is a $100 bill. So, as you think about what the, what the talent is, let's just think about it that way. It's a $100 bill. And in the, in the Greek accounting system, 10000 was the highest number that you could possibly have. And I asked my kids what the highest number was because they're in school. And they're not able to tell me. They're not sure whether it's a billion, trillion, or a zillion, or cord- and they come up with these exillion. I don't know if there's really such thing as that, so I'm not sure. But for, for our purposes, think of trillion, I, because I know our government does. <laughs> so what it's saying here is you come before the big-hearted king as this person who has a trillion hundred dollars debt, a hundred dollar bills a trillion times over debt with this big hearted king. And in that day, that would be a a sum larger than all the biggest regions would owe for their taxes. That'd be like saying your debt with with God is, is greater than North Carolina's tax revenues or the tax revenues for the whole eastern, the southeastern part of this country. I mean, what Jesus is saying is it's a big amount. And then what he says in the parable is that the king looks on this debt, and the servant's response is, please be patient with me, but I don't get any sense that there's, that there's much sincerity in that either, because the very next thing he says is, and I'll pay you back. And you just can't, you know, you have to, if, you have to see the size of this debt to see how, how, on the one hand, how ridiculous and funny that is, but on the other hand, how pathetic that is. And to see how this man never gives up the idea that you live and put your hope in justice. He's still hoping that that will be. The check, the check will be in the mail, is what he's saying. But the big-hearted king overlooks that, and he says, and he does what the servant can't even imagine to ask. What he doesn't even have the imagination to ask. And that is, the big-hearted king says, forget it. I cancel it out. You don't have to pay it. I wipe it. I tear up your marker. You you don't owe me anything. And that's what he does for you, and that's what he does for me. The gospel means that you are forgiven much. Let me go on. The gospel also means that forgiveness is costly and requires death. It requires death. I want to ask you, as you look at this parable... Who took the debt? Who took the cost? Who paid the bill? I mean, as you look at this, when, when, the, when the king forgives the debt, what he's saying in effect is, I'll pay it. I'll take the loss. You know, it's a form of death. And there is no forgiveness unless, unless that's taking place. Unless you face the fact that you're willing to take the loss. My jerk, knee-jerk reaction is, I'll take the loss, five bucks, ten bucks, fifteen bucks, but at a certain point, I'm not going to take the loss anymore because I don't have the resources within myself. I'm not a big-hearted king. But forgiveness means that I'll really face the debt and be willing to take the loss. Look at this. It says that this servant goes out and somebody owes him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii obviously seems like a paltry amount when you first think about it, and you see it in comparison to the 10,000 talents, and it's meant to be that way. However, it was not insignificant. It was about a hundred days' wages. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money. And if you owed me a hundred days' wages, I would not take that in a trifling way. And so, when this man is unwilling to forgive this other guy for owing him a hundred denarii, 
it was something very difficult to do to begin with. And if I don't face the fact that there is something very difficult, that there is a, that there is a significant debt that somebody owes me that I'm being called to forgive, and it won't be real forgiveness. You know, with my abuser, I forgave him when I was a teenager. It wasn't really. Because all I did was deny the pain. What did I forgive? I thought it was pennies. And so there was no real forgiveness there. And it showed. It showed. The same thing with my wife. If I just say, oh, okay, I forgive you. And I don't really face the pain. I don't really face what the debt is, what the cost is to say, I will let this go. I do not require you to pay back. I will take this loss. I will die. If I don't do that, then there's not going to be real forgiveness. When a friend of uh, mine was sharing with me recently, as we had talked about this uh, passage, he said, one, one of the things that I realized was that with my dad, as I faced what this means, I had to have the terror of realizing that once I allowed myself to see the size of the debt and the size of the pain, that I don't have the resources to be able to forgive it. In other words, I don't have enough to take this loss. And that means I desperately need God. And if you don't face the debt, if you don't face the pain and the loss, you're not going to need God. Because you'll think you have the own, your own resources to be able to do it. The gospel also means when we don't forgive, our hearts will demand payment in somebody else's debt. The servant immediately goes out after being forgiven by the big-hearted king and he chokes this other guy for the hundred denarii. And, if, and, and to me, the point there being is when I don't forgive, I choke. If I can't let it go and take the loss then I will require paybacks. Vengeance will kick in. If I, if I put my hope in justice, then justice I will go after. Which means I, I will want to balance the scales. I will want that hundred denarii. I will not be willing to take that loss. And I will choke. I did, I did this with my abuser. I did it in my heart. I did it in my dreams. I did it when I saw him one time when I was home visiting family. And with cold stares and, and quiet frigidity, I froze him out. And I let him know through my eyes and my body language that I was killing him in every possible way I could. And if he made one wrong move or wrong, one wrong wo- word, I would expose him and just dump all my hatred all over him. With Peggy, what I wanted to do immediately was get a payback. And what I did was self-righteous. I just walked away, kept it in my heart, and held it against her for the next few days. And I think she doesn't notice it until she comes to me and says the other day, why are you being so mean to me? I mean, I don't want to be mean. I'm a nice guy. I didn't nearly do to you what I wanted to do to you. (laughs) And she's saying, I saw your hatred dripping off every word that came off your tongue every cold stare, every distant place that you positioned yourself in this home over the last couple of days. Well, I choked her. And that's what you want to do. If you don't, if you don't take the loss yourself, you're going to make the other person take the loss. If you don't die, you're going to want them to die. You instinctively will want to choke them. 
Further, the gospel means that whatever the sin is against you, though, the parable says, it is paltry and trifling in comparison to the debt that was forgiven to you yourself. A hundred denarii is ludicrous when you see it in, in comparison to the, to the 10,000 talents. It's one six hundred thousandth of that, of that total debt. And even more than that, though, I think what's really brought out is the dispro- disproportion because of who was being sinned against, who, was being, who he was indebted to. The size of indebtedness is related to the glory of the one you're indebted to. He was, he was indebted to the great king. And yet the king forgives it. When I think about my abuser, the biggest breakthroughs that have happened with me in my relationship with him have been in God showing me how much I've been forgiven myself. As God has shown me, the very things that are in that man's heart are also in me. And that my sins against my great, big-hearted king are greater than anything he could do to me. It's like one six hundred thousandth in comparison. It has given me a progressive compassion for him. And there's been a progressive forgiveness. Forgiveness is often a process. Not something always that you do once, but as the onion of pain is, is revealed layer by layer, I have to forgive over and over again 77 times. And it's happened with him. To the extent that even though I'm still dealing with it as I shared, and there's still great pain and, and even nightmares sometimes, I was able to meet with him face to face last year after pursuing him by letter and by phone. And by offering the gospel to him over a period of time, he began to have the safety to be able to confess to me all the things that he did and to own up to them and to, with regret and remorse, ask my forgiveness for every one of those things and to assure me that he's in therapy and and working with them. uh, accountability groups and doing everything he can to make amends. He made promises to me that he would give whatever it took, money-wise or otherwise, to help me through it. And I offered him my help um, with some other people uh, that he's abused as well. And we sat here in this area, invited him to my home, but he was too ashamed to come. So we met at uh, some local restaurant over Coke's. And I was truly able to look him in the eye and tell him that I was a bigger sinner, as big and bigger sinner than he was, and that I could love him and forgive him and would, ex- would be seeking that ongoing forgiveness, and that I would do whatever I could to help him as well. But it relates to Peggy too. The people who are closest to you are often the hardest to forgive because you expect more from them, so the debt is all that greater when they blow it, and... It's only when God has been just convicting my heart the last few days how critical I am being of her criticalness <laughs> and how forgiven I am that he's causing me to move towards her and ask her forgiveness as well. The gospel means you're not forgiving when you're disconnecting from it and from Jesus. That we quickly forget and want to go out and choke other people and then they balloon as bigger sinners in our sights and it feels so right to us because justice is just right there kicking in. And so, I want to end with, what do you do now? And what you do is you connect to the gospel. That's the point here. The cross changes you. And so, first of all, pray to be awakened to the immensity of the love and the forgiveness of your Father in relation to the people that you're having trouble forgiving. Pray that He would show you the size of that debt and how much He loves you and how much He has forgiven you. And out of that, you will find power to forgive others. And then add to it. Add to it by saying, here's some more debt. 
Here's some more debt where, I'm ha- where I can't forgive my abuser, where, I- where I'm not forgiving Peggy. Here, I give this to you also, big-hearted king. My unforgiveness I give to you as well. And then keep doing that as often as you have to. Keep adding to that debt. And then thirdly, receive the king's love. Verse 27, applied to you, that the king looks at you with that compassionate, merciful heart and says to you what he said to that servant, I cancel your debt and I set you free, I let you go. And then finally, remember the story of the East African revival where it said that as they got together in worship, the gospel was so alive that they would begin confessing awful sins, sins that would never be said in public. And as they would stand up and share those sins, all of the people around them would begin singing praises. Even before they could finish telling what their sin was, they would begin to sing the doxology. And it is said that the reason for that was they heard the forgiveness more than they heard the sin. I pray that you'll be able to hear the forgiveness more than you hear the sin as you go to the big-hearted king.